Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. The Vancouver Writers' Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. We carry out our work on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This month, we're thrilled to share a conversation with Rebecca F. Kwong, recorded live on May 22nd, 2023, in partnership with Massey Books and SFU Woodward's cultural programs. The author of Babel and the Poppy War Trilogy, Kwong joined us in Vancouver for a sold-out special event to discuss her new literary thriller Yellowface, which became an instant New York Times bestseller. She speaks here with Eddie Boudel Tan, the author of After Elias and The Rebellious Tide. Thank you to HarperCollins Canada for making RF Kwong's visit to Vancouver possible. We'd also like to thank our public sector funders, without whom we couldn't do this work. Those are the Government of Canada, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Government of BC, the BC Arts Council, the City of Vancouver, and CMHC Granville Island. Hi. My name is Leslie Hertig and I'm the Artistic Director at the Vancouver Writers Fest and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this bestsellers series event presented in partnership with Massey Books. Tonight we are honored to be presenting R.F. Kwong in conversation with Eddie Budel Tan. I would like to start by saying that the Vancouver Writers Fest undertakes all of its work, including this event here tonight, on the unceded and stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We are cognizant of the history of these lands and the very urgent and ongoing work that needs to occur as we move toward reconciliation and meaningful sovereignty. And now, I would like to introduce our guest this evening. Our host tonight is Eddie Boudel-Tan. He is the author of two novels, After Elias, which was a finalist for the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction, and the Relit Best Novel Award, and also The Rebellious Tide, a finalist for the Pharaoh Grumley Award for LGBTQ Fiction. His short stories can be found in literary oases like Joyland, Yoke, Gertrude Press, and the GNLR, as well as anthologies from Arsenal Pulp Press and Woolsack and Wynn. He is, uh, sorry, Writers Trust of Canada named him a rising star in Canadian literature in 2021, and I know we're going to be hearing a lot more from Eddie Butel Tan in the years to come. Our special guest tonight has a biography that is dizzying in its depth. She has a Master's of Philosophy in Chinese Studies from Cambridge University and a Master's of Science in Contemporary Chinese Studies from Oxford. She's now pursuing a PhD in East Asian Languages and Literatures at Yale, where she studies the diaspora, contemporary Chinese literature, and Asian American literature. Now, on top of all of that, she has written some of the best-reviewed and best-loved books of the past several years. Her masterpiece trilogy, The Poppy War, introduced readers to an epic fantasy combining the history of the 20th century China with a gripping world of gods and monsters. It catapulted her onto the bestseller and awards lists and made her an instant name to watch. She followed this up with Babel, a novel about the magic of translation, the complicity of academia, and the violence of anti-colonial resistance. 
Incidentally, while on tour in Toronto for Yellowface, she received the news that Babel has won the Nebula, the top science fiction and fantasy award. And this brings us to Yellowface. She calls it her goblin-era novel. Every frustration, scandal, interesting encounter she's had in publishing flows into one stunning satire. One can see how her experiences and successes with the publication of the Poppy War trilogy and Babel might have influenced her storyline for this one. She has tackled everything from whiteness in publishing and appropriation to the rot of social media interactions, jealousy, and the pang of writer's block. This is a propulsive read with much to say about commercial publishing, racism, and appropriation. It's also told by a juicy train wreck of a narrator and told oh so well. Please welcome Rebecca Kwong and Eddie Budel-Tan. Hi, Vancouver. Um, this is the second time in my life I've been in the city, and the first time was when I was 10, visiting my cousin. Um, and I don't remember anything about the city itself. I just remembered that we both had our sexual awakenings watching the Aragon movie adaptation. Uh, we were watching the screen, and I was like, Murtaugh is... Murtaugh is... And Cindy was like, Murtaugh is hot. <laughs> and we're like 10, so um, now I'm adding to my memory bank of Vancouver beyond <laughs> Garrett Headland. I'm so happy that Vancouver has that special part in your heart. You know, it's linked to your sexual awakening. And you're only here for a few hours, but we're happy that you're here. And hello, Vancouver. Good evening. I have to say that I commend you all for being here. It is just so exciting. I don't see an empty seat in the house. And not only is it a Monday, but it's the end of a long weekend. And I have to admit that when Leslie asked me to, to take part in this event, I realized that it was a Monday and I had to think twice about it. But then I learned that it was going to be with Rebecca F. Kwong and I said, sign me up. So it's really exciting to, to be here to celebrate your latest novel, Rebecca, and to talk about it. I'm really uh, excited to, to get deep into the details and to just pick your brilliant mind about this, this novel. And yeah, let's get into it. What do you think? Yeah, let's, let's dive right <laughs> in. All right. Hit me with the hard stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, t I'll start easy. And, you know, I, I will say that this was a, a brilliant novel and such a perfect novel, novel for this time. I had a lot of fun reading it, partially because, you know, I'm an author. And so, so much of what appears in Yellowface just really rang true to me about the publishing industry, all its flaws, all of its biases, and it was brilliantly, brilliantly rendered. And Yellowface is a bit of a departure, isn't it, from your previous works? I heard you say in a podcast recently that you love to try on different voices and try different genres. And you described your creative death as having to, to try or use the same voice and write in the same genre forevermore. And that really resonated with me because I think that is probably what my creative death would feel like, feel like too. 
So from the Poppy War trilogy to, to Babel, you know, there were a lot of elements of, um, you know, speculative fiction, a lot of uh, fantasy and, and magic. What compelled you to, to write Yellowface next, a novel that has so many elements of, of contemporary thrillers? I get bored really easily. <laughs> and I just, I really love trying on different styles and voices. And this comes in part from the fact that I felt tied to the Poppy War trilogy for so long. And when those five years were over and I turned in the last draft of The Burning God, I felt so free. And I vowed to myself, I'm never doing something like that ever again. No trilogies, that's it for me. Um, I, I sold The Poppy War when I was quite young and when you're 20 and you are, are faced with your first book deal, you're not thinking about what it means to commit for the next five years of your life to the same project. You're just so happy to be published. You're saying yes to everything. You're like, whatever, three books, sign me up. And what I didn't realize at that time was that that meant five years during the most transformative period of my life. You know, I was graduating from college. I was moving abroad. I was paying my own phone bill for the first time. I was really figuring out who I was as a person and I felt like a different person from month to month so it was really weird to have to work on the same characters the same plot lines be working in the same narrative voice and style and nobody tells you when you're 24 how irritating it's going to be to try to resolve plot threads you came up with when you were 19 I remember there's so many po points in the burning god where I was like okay I've got to resolve everything but like damn, like, that's nonsense. Like, I don't know what to do in that. Um, so there are actually a few, like, raised plot lines in the Poppy War, like the Red Junk Opera. It's, like, it's dropped as this reference throughout that first book, and it's expected that the other shoe will drop one day, but it's, um, it's Chekhov's Red Opera that never appeared again, and we don't know who they are. Um, so I just, I felt so free after finishing The Burning God, and I thought... Where can I run that is furthest away from the voice of contemporary epic fantasy, which is so fast-paced, so direct. The sentences are very short because the idea is to keep up your adrenaline and interest the whole time. Um, and instead, I ran to 1830s London, and I sat with Charles Dickens for a long time. And Dickens is so fun because he's the complete opposite of a writer like Joe Abercrombie, right? Dickens has this wonderful indulgence maximalist tendency to use all these run-on sentences and describe every single detail in the room and like the personal backstory of every single person in the room. He loves jumping between people's heads and it's just this delicious pace that you get to savor over many serial um, chapters rather than this frenetic story that's unfolding very quickly. Um, so, so that's how I wrote Babel in the voice of the Victorians. And then I got really tired of Dickens because nobody can spend all that much time with Dickens. Um, and I thought, where's the furthest I can run from 1830s London? And it turned out to be uh, the voice of 2023 Twitter. Yeah. So I really wanted to see if I could write a novel that imitates the gut-wrenching feeling you get from doom-scrolling on your phone late at night, because I'm interested in, in what's going on in our brains when we're receiving all this information and all these large claims and, and wondering about large questions about things that are important but often presented in binary, frustrating ways, what it does to our attention spans, what it does to our ability to think about things with 
complexity and nuance. And, and the paradox of yellow face is that I'm trying to unpack really difficult questions that demand patience and complexity and attention to detail. But I'm trying to use this very online voice that is sloppy and messy and does think in binaries and wants to resolve everything quickly and put labels on everything. So that was the next big technical challenge for me. And, and I just love jumping from technical t challenge to technical challenge. It's, it's what makes the work feel fresh and interesting. So I just had so much fun mucking around in this voice. Um, but I'm also very glad to leave it because you can never spend too long doom scrolling on your phone. <laughs> and I definitely got that gut-wrenching feeling doom scrolling through Twitter reading this novel. It must have felt something like a fling after a long-term relationship writing a zippy book like Yellowface after your, your epic sagas. That's a really good way to put it. Um, <laughs> I really love the, the novelist John Banville, and he's written all these great literary fiction novels, and he also has some crime thrillers out. And he was giving this interview describing how his process changed, because with his literary fiction, he, he tortures himself over every sentence, and he's always thinking, I'm the worst writer I've ever met, but I'm still better than everybody else. <laughs> And, and one day, he just decided to put on a new voice and start writing a crime novel, and suddenly all these sentences were flowing out of him, and, and he'd written more in a session than he ever had before. And in this interview, he claims he just stepped back and thought to himself, John, you slut. <laughs> um, so writing Yellowface and having all these words flow out of me, like it just felt so fun and breezy and fast. And I, the whole time, I was thinking, ah, Becky, you slut. <laughs> Yeah, it's different when you don't have to channel your inner Dickens, right? You can just be yourself. 2023, Rebecca Kwong. It's also nice when you don't have to spend hours and hours researching the exact kind of cab they would have yeah. taken from London to Oxford, <laughs> and you can just write straight through the scene instead. Would make a difference. Were you ever tempted to weave in any speculative or magical elements into Yellowface? Well, I'll try to answer this without giving away too much about the book. Um, so, so it's not fantasy, but there are ghosts in the oh, novel, yeah, and ghosts. I really like skirting the line between uh, reality and, and what's going on in June's head. So, so it's speculative in that way, and it's never entirely clear what's going on. So Yellowface is very much a a scathing, unapologetic view of the, the publishing industry, yet so much of how it's depicted rang true for me. Not just its mechanics, but also its biases and its flaws and all of its mystifying qualities, all the ways in which it's rigged in, in many ways. And being an author myself, it was really captivating to, to read because it depicts the highest highs and the lowest lows of being an author. And there's the so things. many lows. And there are so many lows, yeah. It's a bit of an unequal balance, isn't it, between the highs and the lows? Uh, but it, it just so brilliantly brings to life all the things we dream of and hope for, and also our greatest fears and our greatest uh, anxieties and insecurities. So in writing Yellowface, did you set out to write an expose of the publishing industry to, to spill the tea, as they might say? Um, well, first of all, it's really funny that everybody's been talking about it like it's a satire. Um, 
Because the reality is everything that's described in Yellowface doesn't even come close to, to matching how ridiculous publishing gets on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I mean, in the time between when I, I turned in Yellowface and when it came out, there were like dozens more publishing scandals. And, and one recent one involves this romance writer who faked her own death. Um, and then like two years later appeared in a Facebook group and explained how she'd faked her own death and didn't apologize for the donations that people had made to her family's GoFundMe campaign for her, her fake funeral. And she ended her comeback message with the words, let the games begin. <laughs> and so I think publishing is particularly, or at least writers, um, and everybody in the entertainment industry, not just publishing, I think it's true of like film and music as well. I think because we're all storytellers and because part of selling the book is also selling a narrative about the creator. Like we're, we're in this weird moment where authors are incredibly visible on social media all the time. Your publisher often encourages you to post on social media, build a personal brand. So, so it seems like you're, you're catering two stories, one that's within the pages of the book and one that is about yourself, the public figure. And, and since we are always crafting narratives, I think it's easier for folks in publishing to start blurring the distinction between fact and fiction. So literary hoaxes are incredibly common. And, and we, there's you know another breaking scandal all the time about, for instance, there's this editor at HarperCollins who I'm told was just a complete sociopath and, and lied to many people about his mom dying or having cancer and then ended up writing like a, a hugely successful thriller. Um, so, I, w I was musing on, on all this stuff that goes down in publishing, and when I started writing Yellowface, I was thinking about it less as an expose of like the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. That just rather that just comes with structurally how the book works because that's where it's set. But I wanted to interrogate more universal questions of what lies do we tell about ourselves and why do we tell those lies? And in particular, what motivates white authors or white people to want to assume masks of marginalized identities? What benefit do they think they will get from it? And what does that say about a, you know, weird economies in which the, the myth of the token diverse person creates this, this other myth that there is opportunity to be gained if you can pretend you're something other than white? Yeah, and if anyone is wondering, if you've read Yellowface and you're wondering if this is really what publishing is like behind the scenes, it kind of is. <laughs> you might be shocked, but you know, all the stuff that Rebecca mentioned did happen and, and does happen. And, and I also think that writers are you know, naturally pretty dramatic people and often really insecure, so it's not always a good combination. That's why we have agents. Yeah, this is why. <laughs> Well, yeah, so the I therapists, like to, <laughs> and they're also like bodyguards. I like to call my agent my anger translator oh. because I'm like I'm so dramatic, and every time we get an email that doesn't have enough like exclamation points, I'm like, oh my god, Hannah, they hate me. My <laughs> career's over. What are we gonna do? And it's never that big a deal, but that's why I email her, and then she emails the editor rather than me going directly to them. Like, why are you trying to jeopardize my entire career? <laughs> I don't know what we would do without our agents. So when it comes to, to publishing, it can certainly be a, a cynical and an almost monolithic industry. If you could change anything about 
the industry, what would you change? I would make everybody's salaries transparent. And not just salaries in the editorial level. Um, Well, actually, two answers. First of all, I would make everybody be in a union. That's the main thing. Um, But I think... um, so, so one of the impetuses for writing Yellow Face was a lot of conversations that were swirling around the publishing industry in late 2020. And what had happened in the US, I don't know how many of these conversations trickled over to Canadian publishing, but... Okay, good. <laughs> so, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, so if I were gonna historicize it, I think what started it was first George Floyd was murdered that summer and then there were all these protests across the US about police brutality and anti-blackness and then that trickled over into more general conversations across all sorts of industries and sectors about DEI, the performativeness thereof, racism, representation, etc. And it seemed for a moment that publishing was ready for for a real reckoning about who's getting paid what, what sorts of voices are being given opportunities and being platformed, and and why is it that year after year, industry reports show that it's overwhelmingly white writers who are being published. I mean, there's this, this wild 2021 report that came out that showed that, first of all, we've barely made any pros- progress since the 70s, and secondly, you can trace the years where the number of black writers getting book deals spiked to the years when Toni Morrison was an active editor, which which was really frustrating because then you trace it back to just these individual efforts. Um, But one thing that got the conversation going in late 2020 was this campaign called Publishing Paid Me, which was started by two black writers. And they were encouraging people, especially white writers, to share the size of their advances. Because I think before that year, it was considered very unclassy to reveal the size of your advance. People really didn't like talking about money or about deal terms because you know it's it's not cool you keep all that information close to your chest but then folks were encouraging people to to be transparent and it quickly became apparent that there were so many white writers who were getting six-figure deals for debut novels which like good for them you know like get that bag Uh, I encourage everybody to try to get the highest advance they can but the disparity was shocking because we had all these untested writers, you know, who had no proven record of marketability, like publishing was just gambling all this money on them. And in, in like in several cases, there were seven figure deals being offered to, to authors whose books ended up not doing all that well. And then on the other hand, you had quite a lot of black authors who were national award winners, who were multiple bestsellers, had a very strong track record of sales and, and weren't even getting a 10th of what those debut writers were getting, and everybody was asking why, why is this happening? Um, so that's why I think transparency on the advanced level would, you know, it, it gives agents a lot more leverage when they go into acquisitions, negotiations. Um, but but to go back to the question of what was the impetus for writing Yellowface, uh, the, the end of the story is not a very happy one. So after that, all those conversations about how can publishing change, a lot of publishers were making all these promises. They were announcing new imprints, new initiatives, 
um, like programs to acquire diverse voices. Editors were going on Twitter encouraging writers of color to submit to them. They're even saying stuff like, go ahead and send us your manuscript, you don't even need an agent, which was the first red flag because you always need an agent to protect your interests. And, and then just months later, as early as early 2021, a lot of that support had dried up, right? A lot of those initiatives were shuttered, those imprints were closed, the, the editors of color who had been hired to work on those newly diverse lists, they were let go. A lot of them were fired. And those authors who had been newly signed found that they were dealing with radio silence from their publishers. And I know several people whose, whose release dates were pushed back by many months um, and and had huge delays in receiving their edit letters. And this is very specific industry shop talk, but that's very bad for your career because we all sign exclusivity clauses when, when we sign book deals. And if your release date is pushed, then it's another year in which you can't put a novel on submission to another publishing house. So it hamstrings your career for who knows how many years. Um, and so a lot of writers and I were having conversations about how had this happened? What would it take for publishing to actually change? How do we get away from just very performative, superficial language of, oh, we care about diverse voices, whatever, and, and what is really going on inside the industry? And I think that's what motivated Yellowface. Yeah. And you raise a really good point about uh, the example of Toni Morrison being an editor and that causing a spike in, in um, you know, black authored books because it's a cliche, but, but change comes from within. And publishing is a predominantly white and affluent industry when it comes to the decision makers. If, think about the books that would be published and how sustainable the change could be if, you know, there were uh, people, editors, in market, people in marketing, in, in publicity who come from these underrepresented uh, backgrounds. And, and until well, that happens- Well, that's why we need unions. Yes, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Yeah. So is there anything that you're optimistic about when it comes to how the industry or the market is evolving? Well, I'll say two things. Um, first, while I'm on my union shtick, um, the HarperCollins union is the only union in, among the big five publishers in the US. And they very famously went on strike in November of last year. And it was a very long strike. It was like a historically long strike. Um, and they won. Uh, the strike was not broken. It was, I think, a modest victory because they went to negotiations and ultimately one, only one of their demands were met. And some of the larger ones about diversity and union security, HarperCollins would not agree to. But I think it's still a significant step forward because it sets, I mean, it's this watershed moment that sets precedent that proves to folks at other publishing houses that unionizing works and you won't be fired. and and most importantly, that the entire literary community is going to get behind you. I think at the beginning, HarperCollins management was really hoping they could just starve them out, that nobody would really care, I wouldn't make headlines, it's a small union to begin with. But then all these authors started getting on board, and all these reviewers, everybody in the book community, I think it really hurt when people were like, we're not going to review HarperCollins titles, we're not going to talk about them, we're not going to sell them. It sucks for the authors during that period, but 
like you should know that that popular sentiment is overwhelmingly against you. And it was cool to see the whole book community come out that way. And I'm hoping for union efforts now at Penguin Random House. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I know that Barnes and Noble is holding their um, first vote in June. So excited, tentatively excited about that. Um, the second thing that gives me some optimism is related to something you just brought up, which is change coming from within and communities making space for each other. I hope we have time to get into this, um, but there's a character in Yellowface, Athena Liu, the, the one who dies in a pancake eating contest <laughs> early on, um, who is an example of what I like to call bad representation because she is the kind of Asian American author who has achieved immediate success and immediately starts isolating herself from her own community. She hates other Asian American writers. She wants to be the only one in the room. She wants to be the special token and she never sends the ladder down. And I know a few folks like that, but the number of people I know who are the opposite of Athena vastly outweigh these, these folks with Highlander syndromes. And like, I mean, the writing community is so small, everybody knows everybody. And I've just always been so amazed by everyone's kindness and generosity and willingness to support others and, and boost each other's books. And, and I'll just make it very vastly clear how much this, this sending the ladder down means. When I started writing The Poppy War, there was only one other novel that had ever been published by a big five publisher, a fantasy novel by a Chinese American author, and that was Ken Liu's The Grace of Kings. And that came out in 2016, I think. And literally, if The Grace of Kings did not exist, then I wouldn't have had any precedent to believe that the Poppy War could get published. I probably wouldn't have even dared send it out to, to agents because I just, I didn't know that there was space on bookshelves for a voice like mine. And then the year before The Poppy War came out, Fonda Lee's novel, Jade City, was released and, and that's brilliant and, and I love it. And, and that was another example of, wow, maybe there is an audience for, for Chinese American voices and sci-fi fantasy. So it's really just being able to trace everything back to these two first movers, right? Like you can count these examples on one hand and they were cracking the door open for everybody else. Like they were carving that path. And, and it's not just that they set that example. They, they were so um, generous about sending the ladder back down and, and they were so kind to me and offered me all this mentorship and advice and really guided me through my first few years in the industry and they didn't have to do that. Like I was a nobody, they didn't know me and they just, they just did it because they knew that there was nobody else that I could turn to. And everywhere I turn in this industry, it's full of writers of color like that. Like, you know, if this industry isn't gonna make space for us, then we're gonna link arms and make that space for ourselves. And I think that's really cool. Hell yeah. I mean, the industry is already so rigged against us. We are stronger when we work together and you know, there's really no other choice but to do that. So let's talk about race because race is a, a central theme throughout all of, of Yellowface. I mean, look at the title. Uh, there's one, at one point in the story, June Hayward, which is the, the, actually, you know what, question for the audience, how many people have read Yellowface already? Okay, quite a few of you. Wow. So for those of you who have not yet read it, it is the story of two very different authors. Um, one is Athena Liu, this 
wildly successful uh, Chinese-American novelist, a uh, literary darling. And then there's June Hayward, who is a self-proclaimed straight white girl from Philly, who is envious of everything about Athena, despite their supposed friendship. And on the night that Athena dies in, in front of June's very eyes, June decides to steal Athena's unpublished manuscript and pass it off as her own. And what follows is this downward spiral of deception and accusation, and it confronts a lot of the questions that we've been talking about, questions around authenticity and, and privilege, and it's a really bold, audacious, brilliant book. And there's you know one point in which June sees a meme on Twitter with her picture beside Scarlett Johansson's. And, <laughs> and I just, per perfect visual, right? Because we all know what that means. It's not to the controversy that happened a few years about about Scarlett being cast in the role of uh, an Asian character in the American adaptation of Ghosts in the Shell. And the reader is privy to some really damning facts. A white author has stolen a deceased Asian-American author's manuscript, passing it off as her own. And to top it off, it's really centered on a really tragic uh, moment in, in Chinese history. Yet the ethics are far from black and white, um, right? It's, it's certainly a lot more complicated than the two-sided Twitter controversy that, that ends up erupting. And so I want to talk about June's character because June is so complex and, and I find her so interesting. And she performs a really impressive array of mental gymnastics to justify everything that she does. But you know what, she is correct in that the novel that ends up getting published was largely written by her. You know, Athena's draft was, was the foundation that she built upon. And June also claims that Athena had a habit of stealing and borrowing from other people's experiences within her own writing. Um, so I think what really works so well about this novel is the, the muddiness of the morality. And, and I found myself sympathizing with, with June despite how angry I was by her actions, I couldn't help but, but feel sorry for her and, and relate to her in some way. So I, I wanna know from you, I'm really curious, how do you feel about June's character, being the person who created her? I love June. <laughs> I think the best way to describe June and her mental gymnastics is very often, she's out of line, but she's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and well, so to back up, I love muddiness and I love mess. And it was important for me to make June quite sympathetic, to make her a character that you could easily fall into the trap of deeply sympathizing with, because first of all, it's just good craft, right? Mm -hmm. When you're drafting, when you're writing a villain, you never want to write somebody who's nasty and malicious just for the sake of being nasty and malicious. I think you always still have to put a piece of your heart and soul into your worst characters. Otherwise, they don't read like characters. They read like two-dimensional cardboard cutout stereotypes of a bad guy. But it's a lot more interesting to follow a character who has a very sympathetic background, very sympathetic motivations, because then I think it hurts more when you watch their twisted logic and watch them make very harmful and cruel decisions. And in June's case, it was easy to make her sympathetic because 
all of her resentments and frustrations about the industry, I think, are very widely shared among writers. Um, I've had so much fun getting feedback from my writer friends on this novel because most of them are women of color and all of them came back to me with the same kind of nervous response that they were like, you know what, I, I feel really bad about this, but I'm siding with June here. <laughs> um, and the reason why you do is because very few of us have careers like Athena's, right? Almost nobody is a bestseller right out the gate, like this overnight Cinderella story. We all want that, but very, very few people get that. And certainly for me, the first few years of my career felt a lot more like June's. So when I'm writing scenes like going to a bookstore signing after your debut novel has come out and not having a single person show up and just the utter heartbreak and humiliation as the bookstore manager kind of circles awkwardly and just like, oh, maybe you should go home. I don't think anyone's coming. I mean, that hurts so much. And and just like the the thousand tiny cuts of week after week, watching your, your signed stock on the shelf remain there, watching strangers pick it up and put it back and be like, I don't know, it sounds boring. I mean, I think that we don't talk about this enough. It's it's really hard on you mentally to to pour your heart and soul into a story and put it out into the world and watch it either get ripped to shreds or, or watch people not care about it at all. And I think authors are expected to have a really stiff upper lip about everything, you know, never comment on reviews, constantly project this persona of calm and confidence, never freak out to your publisher, but but nobody talks about how terrifying it is from day to day. And certainly during the first few years of my career, I was living always with that just gut-wrenching anxiety and fear about whether I'd squandered my only opportunity, if I would never be able to sell a book again if everything had flopped and I'd not met any expectations and if you know this was it and and it's really scary and we're supposed to pretend like it's not scary and it is and and June's very open about being terrified about all of this which is why she's she's easy to side with um, the other thing is that she's often exactly right about how the industry operates I mean she's she's nasty and cruel and condescending but but when she's making quick judgment calls like, oh, the only reason why they're spotlighting her or talking about Athena in this way is because she fulfills all the checkboxes of being exotic and interesting, diverse, etc. When she's um, pointing out the hypocrisy of, of online deal announcements and making fun of people for acting excited and overwhelmed when this is information they've had for weeks. She's, she's, she's reading them for filth. She's reading everybody for filth. And, I, and so although many of her actions are unhinged and deeply, deeply wrong, um, some of her, her analysis is, is exactly right. And I view her less as this unambiguously evil persona and more like this um, like chaos agent hand grenade lobbed into the, the rotten foundations of publishing that exposes everybody else's hypocrisy. Yeah, I found myself reading for her. And I found myself saying, she's not wrong, everyone. She's not <laughs> wrong. That's a brilliant answer. And June echoes a, a familiar refrain today. Diversity's in. Straight white authors are out. And even in, in real life, we see highly successful and highly respected authors 
publicly lament this supposed overzealousness toward diversity. And, and so, you know, there's something that um, June says in, in the novel that I thought was interesting. So June says at one point, and once you're writing for the market, it doesn't matter what stories are burning inside you. It matters what audiences want to see. And no one cares about the inner musings of a plain, straight, white girl from Philly. They want the new and exotic, the diverse. From your experience, do you believe this to, to be true? Is it, is it actually easier now for authors from uh, historically underrepresented backgrounds to, to make it ahead? No. <laughs> um, I think things have gotten marginally better, right? Certainly in sci-fi fantasy. It's funny because people act like we're living in this golden age of sci-fi fantasy where all these diverse voices are being published. Um, and that's literally just because there are first movers, but you can still count them on two hands. And when you look at industry reports, it's just so clear statistically, it's... Like, I mean, the percentage of non-white authors being published has barely budged from the 70s. So we know from the data that this is not true. And I'm really fascinated in why people think it is true, why they think diversity is the trend that everyone's cashing in on now. Um, for instance, like Twitter personalities like Joyce Carol Oates like tweet ridiculous things like, oh, I had an agent tell me that for a straight white man, it's almost impossible to get anybody to look at his manuscript these days. And it's like, that's not true. Like walk into a Barnes and Noble, like what are you smoking? Um, and so I've spent a lot of time exploring why it seems like this, this myth of token opportunity is so pervasive. And I think it's because there's this narrative that we are reading diverse voices to satisfy liberal guilt. So when you see for instance, during AAPI Heritage Month in the US, right? And when you see everybody being like, here are five novels by Asian American writers to read in the month of May, and for the rest of the year, you can safely ignore them. Um, it feels like there's this liberal tendency to, to overcorrect their racism by seeking out diverse voices. Um, and this is, I hate this because then it's like you're reading these authors because you want them to act as cultural brokers to, to a community that has been oppressed. It's like, it's like these opportunities are, are functioning as reparations, which is bizarre. We get into weird situations where every time something horrible happens to a community, right? Every time um, somebody trans is murdered or every time, for instance, when six Asian American women were murdered by a gunman in Atlanta, the next day you saw all these tweets and posts that had reading lists uh, by Asian American authors and it was like, this horrible thing just happened. Um, and since the only interesting thing about this marginalized community is their pain, you know, here are voices you can read. But at all other times, we don't care about them. We don't think of them seriously as storytellers. It's just this, this liberal guilt corrective. And it doesn't meaningfully budge the numbers of who's being published or who's being given opportunity. But I think it does create this weird tokenization myth that, that leads a lot of people to think, oh, 
Maybe my poems would be published if I assumed a Chinese pen name. And this has happened multiple times. It's, it's honestly weird how many cases of literary yellow face there, there are. But I think we can trace this back to this assumption that you know, white people want to read about BIPOC folks because they, they want to understand their pain and feel better about themselves. And that's how you get your, your foot in the drawer. And it's deeply frustrating. Yeah, it really is. And what would you say to someone who pointed to your success and used that as proof that the industry is now favoring stories and authors outside of the white experience? Well, I'd ask them to take a statistics class. <laughs> um, I think a lot about the position I occupy and whether I'm only here because I'm conveniently HarperCollins' token. That's part of why I started writing in June's voice because I've just been told that for so much of my career, right? Since the beginning, I've had folks like say often to my face, um, the only reason why you're here is because you're like the checkbox diverse candidate. You're exotic, you're interesting, um, you're diverse for, for the time being, but it's not, not actually on storytelling merit. You're, you're just a way for your publisher to claim that they favor um, BIPOC voices. And, and it really like gets at you and you start internalizing it. And after a while, I would, I mean, I just had this tremendous self-doubt and this anxiety. Every time something could happen to me, I'd wonder, is this only happening because I'm the convenient token? Mm. And, and I still don't know. Maybe I am. But if I have the platform that I do, I'm going to seize the opportunity and turn around and, and tell the stories that I think are important to me and try to use my elbows to create as much space for others as possible. And I think that's the only thing you can do when you find yourself in the suspicious position of the, the token. Definitely use those elbows. <laughs> <laughs> my elbows are sharp. <laughs> So zooming out of, of publishing and, and literature, some people might point to, say, the, the historic wins at the latest Oscars or mainstream phenomena like beef or crazy rich Asians as evidence that we're in this golden era, let's say, of Asian American pop culture. What are your thoughts about that? Do you, do you think there's proof in that? People love to say you're in a golden era when there's <laughs> more than one. Um, it's this weird way of like inflating a group's success so that it, it kind of actually diminishes the win because it diminishes how groundbreaking and, and historic it is and the fact that they've really only just, just taken the first steps and carving out a path for everybody else. Um, so I'll, I'll think we're in a golden era when it's no longer so remarkable that an Asian-led film is able to win the Oscars. Amen. That being said, I loved everything everywhere all at once. I do Same. think it's super groundbreaking. Um, so you didn't ask about this, but I think one reason why it's groundbreaking and amazing is because it's one of the first Asian-American films I've seen that doesn't treat 
an identity binary as a problem that needs to be solved. I think the, the standard recipe in every Asian, popular Asian American film, um, and I think this is certainly true of Crazy Rich Asians, is the protagonists being so tortured about how Eastern or Western they are and struggling with not belonging. And everything, everywhere all at once is just like, whatever, like, well, literally, you can just literally be everything everywhere all at once. And, and the ways that it has its characters juggle languages and just gleefully um, employs a plot that prima facie has nothing to do with trying to resolve this paradox between assimilation or, or return to the motherland. I think that's so satisfying. And that I think that is a groundbreaking moment where we finally had an Asian American film that treats Asian diaspora identity as a problem that doesn't need to be resolved. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, even the, the first time that I saw the film trailer for Crazy Rich Asians, I got really emotional and, and it surprised me because I'm like, this is a rom-com trailer. Like, why am I getting emotional <laughs> watching this? And, and I reflected a lot about it and it's because it was the first time that I, I saw an all Asian cast, a cast of people who look like me who were just allowed to just be hot and sexy and glamorous, you know, and fun. And, and it was so sad also at the same time to think that that was 2018 and I was in my 30s and it took up until the point that I was in my 30s to see a big Hollywood blockbuster trailer that resembled Crazy Rich Asians. And, and I thought about my parents actually and my parents are actually in the audience somewhere. Hi mom, hi dad. Oh, there you go. And I thought about them because uh, this is just like a funny story, but they owned the Joylet Club, the film adaptation on VHS, which sounds kind of mundane, but it was extraordinary because my parents don't really care about movies. The last time we saw a movie together was Titanic. And, <laughs> and I'm not even kidding you. So for them to own a film on VHS for, their, for themselves, I was too young to make any sense of it, so it was clearly for them. It meant that the movie meant something to them, just in a very similar way that Crazy Rich Asians meant something to me, and it's just so sad and, and shameful that two decades lapsed between those two moments. I, I also got super emotional watching the trailer for Crazy Rich Asians. Although I think it's a really good case of how we talk about representation because a lot of Asian Americans and Asians like really hate that film. And there are a lot of really good valid criticisms of it. Um, and you know, it's like, who is, really is it representing? It's representing like a very niche group of like wealthy East Asian Chinese diaspora folks. Um, and, and I went into the theater knowing all these criticisms Criticisms, um, because I'm in a PhD program and we're just like suspicious of everything. Um, and so I went in thinking like, God, I'm gonna hate this. Like, you know, it's just pandering to me. Um, and so I wasn't ready for just the very first scene where Michelle Yeoh and her kids are um, turned away by this racist hotel manager and, and she comes back and is like, you're fired, I own the hotel now. And I just started bawling like a baby. Um, and it just, it hadn't hit me the fact that I've just never seen that dynamic on screen. So Crazy Rich Asians is cool because you can believe, you can know multiple things about it at once, like hold multiple truths in your head. You can acknowledge what it what it's done, like what the what a significant first step it's taken for making visible relationships that 
Asian Americans have never before seen on screen and, and also being flawed in, in so many ways, but you can only pick apart something and criticize it if it exists. And yeah, yeah it's, it's just so cool that we have the, the start of a canon that we can talk yeah. about and build upon now. Yeah, and to think how starved we have been for that type of representation in, in mainstream media is, is shocking and, and sad. So what, in Yellowface, one of the, the questions that is confronted is this question about who is entitled to write about which stories. So on one end of the spectrum, everyone is entitled to write about whomever and whatever they want because literature is a vehicle for empathy and this is what writers do. And on the other end of the spectrum is the opposite view in which you can only write about one's own identity one's own lived experience. And of course, there are several degrees in between. So in Yellowface, June wonders why Athena should be more entitled than she to write about the Chinese labor corps in World War I, because Athena is, yes, she's Asian, but she's also wealthy and Yale-educated and a millennial. So what would Athena know about that era in history that another author couldn't research themselves? And, and it is you know, a, fair, a fair question, and I think it illuminates how complicated this issue is. What would you imagine to be Athena's defense? Maybe Athena's done her research. Um, but I, I'm really glad you brought that up because it illuminates how frustrating and reductive I find a lot of the discourse about authenticity and cultural appropriation and who gets to write what. And... I know a lot of this language is coming from a very sympathetic place, right? So movements like Own Voices, which came from the YA sphere, this argument that people should really only write about communities if they are a voice from within that community. You shouldn't write a novel with queer main characters unless you are queer yourself. It was all coming from a very understandable place of years of frustration and, and real harm caused by just all these horrible, uncritical um, replication of racist tropes. And, and I certainly grew up being so frustrated at the same archetypes of Asian girls in books by white authors I read, you know, girls with vaguely Chinese, Japanese, Korean ancestry named like Lotus Blossom, who <laughs> had like almond-shaped eyes, etc. Like, you know, so, so I, I was with it. Um, the problem is that it quickly spiraled into this really reductive, discursive space where we allow people to be authentic or give them permission to write something if they have the right kind of racial label. So it leads to situations where Athena is more qualified to write about the Chinese labor corps because she has that claim on Chinese heritage, but completely obliterates all of the other multiple dimensions, not just of identity, but also of craft, right? Athena's never served on the war front. Um, it's not clear in the text that she even really speaks Mandarin or can do research in it. And, and she is wealthy and privileged. And, and when we talk about Asian American representation, class somehow always gets conveniently left out of the conversation, which is how we end up in weird situations where East Asians end up representing, well, very successful East Asians who go to Ivy League schools and become doctors or lawyers are, are supposed to represent everybody else. And that's how we come up with bullshit, like the model minority myth, et cetera. I'm doing my PhD in Asian American studies. I can go on about this for a really long time. Um, but yeah, I'm, so, 
So Athena doesn't necessarily have any special claim to talk about all this stuff either. And I think the, the most harmful aspect of this reductive labeling and telling people to stay in their own lanes and giving people permission to write certain characters based on who they are is that it's really been used as a, a weapon to turn around and pigeonhole marginalized writers instead. So you end up in situations where Asian American authors are told, you can really only write about immigrant trauma. You can really only write about how the other kids made fun of your lunch um, in elementary school or made fun of your eyes, etc. But if you try to write any other kind of story, if you you try to, you know, um, deviate from the the immigrant narrative that Amy Tan really um, really established, then then you're not the right kind of Asian American author, and your story isn't relatable enough, etc. So now I'm I'm back to the place where. Like, bad representation is bad, but we should start from the assumption that everybody gets to write about whatever they want. And if the work is bad, if it's uncritically replicated tropes, if it's just, you know, such a, a messy, reductive representation in another group, that's a craft issue, right? That's something for, for readers to read and discover that they really don't like. Um, but I think it's really frustrating to limit from the outset who gets to write what, because we just end up in, in these very basic uh, binaries that, that lack any sort of nuance or complexity. Um, and I, I think so in, in, in other words, my answer to the question of like cultural appropriation, who gets to write what, et cetera, I'm, I'm with Roxane Gay. Um, I did an event with her two weeks ago at Penn World Voices, and, and a girl asked her from the audience, how do you feel when write, white writers decide that they want to write um, black women as their protagonists? Um, and Roxane was like, I don't have time for this. Like, There's so many other issues to worry about. Like, let Feel free, Like, do whatever you want. If it's bad, then we're just all gonna shit on it. And, and if it's good, then like, mm, okay, good for you. Um, but like, write what you want. And I think it's a question of textual criticism, whether whether it's well done. Um, but you know, language like allowed, permissions, rights. I think it is very unhelpful, and in more cases, actively harmful. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that perspective. And and you said something about the weaponization of these these rules and the harm that it can cause. Do you feel like? that comes from a place of good faith and good intentions, or is there something more malicious in, in the way that those rules are asserted? I think it's coming from a really lazy um, perspective on what race is. Yeah. I think, and, and this is how identity gets discussed on, on social media as well. We always end up with these like really basic check boxes of like yellow, black, white, et cetera. And, and again, like identity is really complex. There is no singular Asian American subject. Um, and once again, like class is always left out of the picture. But when you're just sorting people into Chinese author writes a book about Chinese people, it doesn't really indicate everything, but it lets people get away with, with acting. Like they've, they've made an important reading choice that they're now reading diversely, whatever. So I want to leave some time for some audience questions. I'm going to keep my questions down to one last one. And we've talked a lot about race and representation and, and Chinese and Asian characters and culture uh, is, are very prevalent throughout all of your, your works. What duty do you feel, if any, to, to represent 
Asian characters and culture in, in your work? I don't think about it as a duty. Um, when I sit down to write, I'm not thinking I have to create space for Chinese American protagonists because um, because I am from that community and, and I have this duty. It's more because it would just be really weird to write only white protagonists, um, having never been white myself. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it, it would be an active choice to decide to write only white people. And I'm just writing what I know, and I'm writing about the community that I grew up with and the way that I move through the world. Um, and if it ends up being good representation, that's fine. But again, I don't like to think of myself as a cultural tour guide or an ethnographer or an ambassador explaining Chinese Americans to white people, especially because there's no way that my singular experience can represent everyone's. Again, there's, there's no singular Asian American subject. There's not even a singular Chinese American subject, right? There's so many different waves of emigration, so many socioeconomic strata. Like depending on what region of China you're from, you're gonna have a very different experience trying to assimilate in the US. So it's it's reductive and I think irresponsible to think that I could act in as, an, as an ambassador for everyone. I just have to write the stories that are meaningful for me. And, and since I've never lived inside of a white perspective, it's just never going to be from a white perspective. Here, here. Well, thank you, Rebecca. We, we got a lot of really, really smart and interesting questions by email, so I'm gonna ask you uh, a few of them from the audience, but we also should have some time for questions within the live audience, so if there's something that you want to ask, think about it, and, and we might call upon you to, to voice your question. So, question number one from the audience via email. Uh, throughout your oeuvre, you seem to have explored a lot of different tools for making social change. But as you've progressed chronologically from the poppy war to yellow face, it seems like the tools being used have become more subtle, moving from outright violence and civil war to more subversive forms of change from within the system. Do you think this reflects the evolution in your own thinking on revolution and social change, or are you consciously attempting a systematic reflection on various types of social change? That is a very smart question. Right? <laughs> I don't know if I have a smart enough answer. Um, I, I don't think it's because I've grown more distant from violent revolution. Um, Babel still feels very recent to me, and it's, the title is literally um, on the necessity of violence. I think it's because I'm writing about the change that is possible within different systems I'm trying to make an intervention against. And unfortunately, in contemporary publishing, you just like can't take up machetes and storm the offices of HarperCollins. Um, I think another theme that I'm you know, wrestling with a lot more, um, which I think is not a reflection of getting less radical or more subtle, but just a, an increasing interest on one particular form of change is, and I think this is mapped with something really interesting that's going on with Gen Z. I'm just, I'm really fascinated by labor movements and that's occupied a lot of my research and thinking over the last few years and I'm, I'm really attached to unions and collective action as really the only effective method of change we have. 
And nobody asked me about Jorts the cat, but I want to talk about the current moment of, of social media and how unions are talked about because I think it's a, it's a special opportunity and we shouldn't squander it. We're in this weird place where you have a lot of really young people who didn't grow up during the decades watching unions being brutally dismantled by corporations and haven't really inherited that pessimism. And I write a lot about students, um, and naive students in particular, because I think precisely the, the things that make students powerful um, radicals is their, their ability to dream and uh, their inexperience with the world and, and the fact that they don't have that inherited pessimism. And I think we're in this cool moment where Gen Z is, is able to make unionizing seem so cool. And it seems like such a frivolous, superficial thing, but the, like, that's how you get people on board with collective action, right? It's a collective mindset shift. And I'm thinking about what happened during the HarperCollins strike. You had a lot of like, you know, teenagers on book talk, I think played a much larger role in making that strike effective than anyone realized because it was those folks who, who do a lot of free marketing, who, who are moving a lot of copies these days. And when you had like, you know, dozens and dozens of TikTokers garnering like millions of views on, on videos where they're like, I'm not buying HarperCollins titles, I'm not reviewing them, like HarperCollins, you suck, don't be a scab. Like that has a collective impact and I think it's cool and I wanna see that grow. Um, I, the reason why I bring up George the Cat is because it's, you know, like this would not have been possible in the pre-internet era. He's this Twitter account of an orange tabby cat that is just not that bright. Um, and he first became viral because one of the folks at the office taking care of him was buttering him with like a butter stick. I don't know. Uh, and, and he happens to work at like a labor organizing um, office. So, so once they realized that George had gone viral for being buttered, they used that Twitter account to like start tweeting constantly about unionization efforts all over the country. And, and that was so cool. Um, sorry, I forgot the original question, but I'm just, I, I wanna see where this goes um, because when we think about like, so everything happening in the US, like just generally late stage capitalism, everything feels so hopeless, but I'm really clinging to, to the burgeoning consciousness among young people about unions as, as one of the things that could push things off its course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've gotta look up George the Cat now. I thought it was <laughs> up to date with my Twitter references, but I've not yet seen George. Jorts. I believe the story started with a Reddit post that asked, um, am I the asshole or am I being racist for saying that orange cats are dumb? <laughs> <laughs> and that they helped the Starbucks right. unionize, so. Is he actually wearing jorts? Oh, well, his name is Jorts, but he doesn't wear it. He doesn't anything. actually wear jorts. I think that was part of the original controversy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. So next question. I'll do one more from email and then we'll open it up to, to the live audience here. So your writing often challenges conventional notions of morality and ethics, depicting characters who engage in actions that are both morally ambiguous and ethically complex. How do you approach crafting characters with such complex motivations? And what do you hope readers will take away from these portrayals? 
again, another very smart question that I don't know how to answer briefly. I think I'll just say I, I never want any of my characters to feel like cardboard representations of a certain ideology. Everybody's complex and everybody makes mistakes and, and folks are inconsistent and, and folks change their minds. So when I have when I toss my characters into situations and have them argue and struggle, I'm really just trying to encourage the reader to start untangling questions with me. I never want any of my novels to have a really clear moral message for the audience to take away at the end, in part because I study modern Chinese literature and we read a lot of propaganda novels and those propaganda novels are really, really bad. Um, they just like follow this pattern of like, the landlord was evil and then we killed him and took all his property and then everybody was so happy. Um, <laughs> And it's just, it's not fun to write that kind of story because it, it really doesn't respect the reader. It's condescending and infantilizing and it assumes that the reader can't think critically about the problems in the text. So I only ever use my novels to try to invite the reader to think about these questions with me. And, and sometimes I reveal like where my sympathies lie, but I wanna make everything ambiguous and messy enough to to be attendant to the complexities of, of different perspectives and, and not write silly grain production novels. <laughs> okay, we have enough time, I think, for one or two questions from the audience. If anyone has a question, I think there is a young lady in the third row from the front who really shot up her hand quickly. Hi, sis. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I'll keep it short and simple. Um, both Babel and Poppy Wars ended, quote unquote, unhappy, but you put uh, like a message of hope in there as well. Um, what draws you to tragedy in particular? Is it the catharsis that comes with an unhappy, bittersweet um, ending, or do you just like making your readers sad? <laughs> no, I'm just an emo gal, um, <laughs> personally. I think it's more because I come from a history background and to write about 20th century Chinese history and to wrap everything up cleanly with a happy ending feels quite irresponsibly escapist. Um, so when I write tragic endings or ambiguous endings, when it's not clear who's, who's victorious and um, who's really come out okay on the other end, I think it's coming from wanting to be faithful to those historical narratives and not simplify people's lives or to diminish their struggles by pretending that there was an easy solution there all along. Why don't we get a question from this side of the room? Okay, so. So I have a question, um, as someone who has been through many years of different academic institutions, as well as um, different studies, uh, you, Robin's struggle in Babel, he kind of struggles between the complicity and academia, and then as well as trying to make a difference in doing what he can. Is that something you also struggle with? Like, does that kind of come from your own experience and... Um, I guess, experience with conflict? Like, do you experience that kind of conflict as well that you have instilled into Robin's character? I think about it all the time. And I think anybody at elite institutions has to think very critically about how they got there, why they are there, and what they're trying to do with the tools and, uh, and cultural capital that they accrue by being there. 
Um, there's this really smart professor at my home institution named Daniel Hosang, who has written this book called A Wider Type of Freedom. And in the introduction, he argues against a, a form of revolution that is basically just the diversification of the elite. So when I think about getting a Yale degree and just participating in academia myself, enjoying the prestige and the cultural clout that being a Yaley gives me, um, I know know that that would just be a diversification of the elite and it wouldn't change anything. So instead, every day when I walk into the classroom, I'm asking myself, what am I doing with the resources here and how am I taking that to, to send the ladder back down? And you know that probably means I don't want a job at an Ivy League institution. Um, I think teaching is really important. I love being in the classroom. I love the particular discursive space where you can be vulnerable and you can be wrong and you can work through complex ideas together and struggle um, and and also where everybody's expected to come having done the reading and and cite their arguments um, and and the authority on which they're making their arguments and other spaces like this are just vanishingly small. It's certainly not anywhere on social media. Um, most social media platforms are built to spread you know, disinformation or or to reduce very complex conversations. So I believe very strongly in the power of the classroom and I know I want to teach, but I'm conscious every day when when I walk into a classroom at Yale, what power systems and am I navigating within and am I here just to have the Yale degree or am I here to, you know, grab as much stuff as I can, download as many articles, you know, <laughs> learn as much as I can and then take that out into the world and, and leave the ivory tower behind. Thank you so much. Okay, we have time for more questions. Why don't we go all the way in the back? There's someone in the very back row on this side. Um, I just need your comment on... Uh revulsions faced by women, specifically women of color in publishing industry, because you talk about Rupi Kaur, especially in, in one of the chapters. And just wanted to comment because there's a lot of hate that goes on, especially there was a whole fiasco on TikTok uh, for one of the book talkers uh, talking about Babel, how much they disliked it, and people were not having it. So how do you take that into consideration? I just don't really watch those videos. <laughs> um, I don't think you can. I don't think it's good for writers to be in reader spaces. So when I'm on TikTok, I'm looking at cats. Um, and I'm, I'm avoiding book talk because I just don't think that we were made to absorb um, opinions that thousands of people have about us. Like, I, I just, you know, that's part of why social media is such a terrifying place because you, it exposes you to all this information that you can't possibly process. And my biggest priority above everything else is maintaining the time and focus and dedication to the craft. So, so watching like somebody bashing one of my novels on book talk would only ever be a distraction. There's nothing I could learn from that. It won't make me a better writer. Um, so you've just got to let readers do their thing and let go um, and, and let y'all have your fun. Um, but you know, it doesn't bother me because I'm not looking at it. Okay, there's someone at the very, I think, third row down on this side, and their friends really want them to ask this question. Hey, sorry about him. 
Okay, so you've mentioned a few times about how you're doing your PhD. And so I was wondering how is it maintaining the relationship between your literary uh, like section of your life and your acad academic field? And how is it like balancing the ups and downs that come with both of those sections of your life? Um, it's tough. Uh, the biggest problem is time. I Now that I've started teaching and I'm not just in classes, it just feels like all of my days have shrunk because teaching is just this black hole of time where you have to prepare for a section and make handouts and grade papers, grading papers especially, especially because like everyone's just writing their papers with chat GPT now and like they suck anyways and it's so frustrating. Um, and then office hours, I just, there are just all these months during the semester where I'm completely unable to write. And, and I just deal with that as best I can by writing as furiously as I can during the breaks. But every time I get frustrated about this, I um, think about J.R.R. Tolkien, um, because he was a professor for many years while he was writing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And when The Hobbit was coming out in the US, um, so I know this because I got to go to a cool private exhibitions of some of his private papers, and I saw these beautiful watercolors that he'd illustrated for the US edition of The Hobbit. Um, and he was never trained as a watercolor artist. He just picked up a brush one day and was like, I'm, I'm genius at this too. Um, <laughs> but so he, uh, so when The Hobbit was being published in the US, his US editor came to him and asked um, J.R.R., will you, will you do like a whole set of illustrations because Americans won't buy books unless they have pictures in them? And he was like, sure, that's fine, um, but it's winter term, so you're gonna have to wait until the break um, because I'm grading papers right now and I'm giving lectures. And they're like, okay, cool, we'll wait for you. So I think if they could fudge deadlines for Tolkien, they can fudge deadlines for me. Um, it just it just leads to weird compromises, like like the fact that so people keep asking me, is Yellowface coming out in May because it's AAPI Heritage Month? And the answer is no, it's coming out in May because there's exactly two months of the year when I can tour. Uh, May because it's the end of the spring semester and August because it's before the fall semester. Um, and Babel came out in August, so Yellowface had to come out in May. Um, and you just have little compromises like that and, and you delay deadlines and you, you lose sleep and everything just gets harder. But um, I think you know, the, the delight I get from publishing makes up for it. And on this topic, I hope you don't mind my bringing this up, but I hear that next year you're gonna have a little break, aren't you, from publishing books? I am. Um, I was supposed to have a fantasy novel come out next year, but we, we pushed it to 25 because I'm studying for my qualifying exams next year, and I'd really like to pass those. Um, <laughs> and I'm also getting married next June. <laughs> Thanks. And I just, I want that time off. Um, and I used to feel really guilty about wanting time off. Um, because I'm Asian and I'm like, yeah. I need to be a workaholic all the time. Yeah. Look at me reducing all agents to a single general statement. Um, but I've realized that 
having time off to just live and read and watch movies and talk to other people, get their stories, just like just being in the world is so important for for being creative. And, and you just can't pump out story after story because you you deplete your well. You have nothing meaningful to say anymore. Um, so I'm excited for that time to just, you know, receive all the all the sensations and impressions and and um like the stuff of life that that goes into work and into the craft because when i come back i'll I'll be a better writer so i'm trying to be cool with it but i still get this anxiety that i'm not working hard enough i think you've earned some time off rebecca (laughs) okay so we're gonna bring uh leslie from the vancouver writers fest out for a few closing remarks that went so quickly. I could sit here for another couple hours listening to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you so much, Eddie, for that conversation. Um, we are going to do our best to get as many of you um, an autograph as possible downstairs. So Rebecca will be joining you on the main level. That's the lobby level. And we'll see you there soon. Don't forget, you can buy a signed copy and not wait in the line. Thank you. You have been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. To hear more events like this one and view our upcoming events, visit our website at writersfest.bc.ca.